ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello there. It's the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West on RN and ABC Listen. And stay tuned because at a tough time, we'll try to leave you laughing at life in Spain's most religious city. They will quite often be dressed up with blown-up penises on their heads. They'll carry inflatable dolls. They might be dressed up in very revealing clothing, sometimes even naked. I think that's quite rare, but certainly dressed up in quite sexual clothing. Now, as we were completing the show, Israel and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad were blaming each other for a missile strike on a hospital in Gaza that's killed at least 500 people. That's in addition to the estimated 3,000 deaths so far during Israel's bombardment of Gaza. But all this follows the Hamas slaughter of 1,400 Israelis, mostly civilians, and the capture of around 200 hostages. This cycle of violence raises this question – How far can Israel go to eliminate Hamas? There's international law, and one of its jobs is to reduce the number of civilian casualties. Samuel Moyne is a professor of human rights law and history at Yale University. Well, Sam, what's the answer? You can't shoot at a civilian and aim to kill him or her. You also have limits on the number of civilians you can harm collaterally. That's where the murkiness comes in. My president, Joe Biden, has said that Israel has to obey these laws of war, presumably, including that rule. And Israel has always said it obeys the laws of war. But when you have a civilian population living cheek by jowl with the enemy, in some cases being used as human shields by that enemy, The question really is, can you kill that many civilians in the name of your military objective? And there's just a lot of controversy about what exactly the limit is. You mentioned there, Sam, that Hamas uses many of the citizens of Gaza as human shields. Should Israel be deterred by that? I think so, because... Those people, at least in the framework we're operating with, are still innocent civilians. The fact that Hamas operate in this little piece of land where there's unavoidably dense civilian presence, and indeed that Hamas might use civilians to hide amongst, I don't think it relieves Israel from the obligation to take those civilian lives seriously and conduct its calculus of whether its particular military advantage in any attack really does outweigh the likelihood of civilian harms. Now, someone might say, well, that means that Israel can't ever attack because mm-hmm. Hamas is going to operate in ways that raise the levels of likely harm from any Israeli attack, such that it outweighs any military objective. I guess I would respond, well, that's a situation in which Israel was involved in creating. This is a tiny piece of land. It's been under de facto or even according to some de jure occupation for so long. I'm not sure we should want to have the view that Hamas's activities should allow Israel to leave the moral high ground when it comes to 
protecting civilians. Mm. It has to fight consistent with these rules or it has to explain why not. The uneven playing ground in one sense, though, Sam, is that Israel is a properly constituted state. I know it's the subject of enormous contention and it is a deeply imperfect state, but Hamas, does it have some out clause here? Because um, Hamas is not a recognised government. It it has a very well-organised militant force, but it's not a properly constituted army. Can it be held responsible in the same way as Israel? The legal framework never captures the morality of situations perfectly, yet we say it's going to guide us. And in this case, the legal framework says you never have an excuse to target civilians or kill too many collaterally. And the nature of your enemy doesn't provide you an excuse. My country lived through this, where after 9-11, George W. Bush said the nature of the enemy excuses us from these obligations. And the verdict of history is that Americans made an enormous mistake in just ignoring the rules. The same, I think, is going to be true of Israel if it ignores the rules. Now, the deeper trouble, as we've discussed, is that Israel is going to have enormous temptation not to break the rules, which it's unlikely to say it's doing, but to bend them so far that very few people believe that it's taking its obligation seriously. And the results are going to be even greater isolation of Israel in the international community than it's already you know, undergone. Is there a difference in international law, Sam, between dropping a bomb knowing full well that, and forgive the the brutal explicitness here, but knowing full well that innocent people, including children, will be torn apart and cold-blooded slaughter of people close up. I'm talking about shooting people in their beds, stabbing them, right. hacking them, right. burning them to death. Does international law make right. a distinction between those two types of killing of innocents? Absolutely. We have to think through how they're different as well as similar. I mean, in the end, they're killing. And if we're pacifists or something like that, we say it's all abhorrent. Or if we say there's only a political solution in this situation and murder doesn't advance things, murder on one side or the other is equal. But what Hamas did according to international law, was to break the first rule, which was they directly targeted civilians. And it's true, they did so in a precise way from close up. In theory, at least, according to what it's saying, when Israel drops a bomb, it's not directly targeting civilians. It's at risk of breaking not the first rule, but the second rule, which is that it can't kill too many civilians collaterally. I would like that second rule to be a lot stronger because think about it, it condemns Hamas for doing, in the end, less killing than Israel has already done because it can claim that it's not directly targeting civilians, just killing them collaterally. And yet, the flexibility of that second rule, which prohibits collateral killing, is one that allows greater infliction of harm. So you begin to wonder, is this the right way we should be thinking using this legal framework, which maybe distracts us from what's really going on as much as it helps uh, hold states to account? 
What about morally, Sam? Because you're not just a human rights lawyer, you're also a legal philosopher. And I just wonder if there are some people who might be wrestling with this and and sort of rationalising that there's a difference between killing innocent people, you know, certainly recklessly with a bomb and the kind of up-close sadistic slaughter that we saw from Hamas. I don't know if there's a difference, a real difference, but I imagine some people might think there could be. There is some difference, but remember, it's only one side that can engage in the less sadistic practice of dropping bombs from on high. And hmm. Because I don't want to talk about Israel exclusively. You know, my country in places like Korea and Vietnam could get very sadistic dropping bombs from on high, hmm. um, in part because when you're claiming to target only combatants, when they're living in close quarters with civilians, what is even the meaning of saying you're only killing civilians collaterally? You are, in, from a moral perspective, aiming your bombs at civilians. To me, the moral issues really lie elsewhere because from a moral point of view, everyone around the world is in some way complicit in this ongoing injustice, which is two peoples fighting they're not equally powerful. The suffering is not equal over all of these decades. As an international community, we have to think if we're taking morality seriously, how do we promote a political solution to this ongoing contention rather than focus narrowly when violence occurs at keeping it within bounds? I notice that uh, Joe Biden has um, said that he thinks uh, Israel mounting a ground invasion and then an occupation, a reoccupation of Gaza would be a very bad idea. But wouldn't an occupation of Gaza, maybe not uh, endless, but an actual occupation, reoccupation of Gaza, also force Israel, though, to actually take responsibility because if it has had Gaza under siege in inverted commas for the last 20 or so years, now it's forced to manage Gaza. I see your point, but remember that according to mainstream international lawyers, the Gaza is already under occupation just from a kind of external perspective. Access to the territory, including from the sea, all of the goods and services that enter, which I've seen at the Gaza border, water, gasoline, are controlled by Israel already. Everyone knows this. So what you're really talking about is not reoccupation, but just the physical presence of Israeli troops on a day-to-day basis. If you think that in the eyes of the world that would make clearer than now who's ultimately responsible, I see your point. What I'm worried about is that it would lead to more killing of ordinary people, more Israeli death, at least of soldiers, and would not take us anywhere closer to a kind of political solution to this decades-long you know, strife. Just finally, Sam, what would happen if Israel was to somehow lift this fellow Yahya Sinwar, who is the leader of Hamas, perhaps when he was uh, visiting Qatar or, or somewhere like that, and bring him to Israel for trial? 
I think it would be really interesting. Right now, multiple Israeli officials have basically said he's a dead man walking. It would have to be seen as something different from a show trial, but it would be a criminal law approach to the problem of terrorism that most states have refused, including the United States after 9-11, which famously called its policy a war on terror, really kind of on the Israeli model. Alternatives to that model are not popular, in part because it's very hard to capture criminals of that kind. But if it could be done in the way it was done with Adolf Eichmann, it would be a very different path, although it would be a difficult one and strewn with hazards. Professor Samuel Moyne of Yale University, one of the world's top philosophers of law, also a historian. Thank you very much for coming back to the Religion and Ethics Report. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Now, we've been here 40 years, and we don't have any chance to get the communication with the First Nation. That's the reason why we got a gap, to understand uh, what the nation lost uh, during the bus. Uh, your power's gone up, your groceries have gone up, everything's going up and then you suddenly got to do a referendum. Many of them have been fed this misinformation about your land being taken, about you being uh, made to rebuy your houses from the Indigenous Land Council. There's some of the sounds from Western Sydney as people voted in the referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament. In the end, the geographic divide, as you know, was stark. Inner suburbs, yes. Outer suburbs, regional Australia, no. Now, Western Sydney is the most religious and ethnically diverse part of Australia. Across its 13 federal seats, the average no vote was 62%. So what accounts for this result in the multicultural heartland? Dr Rhonda Itawi is director of the Centre for Western Sydney. Broadly, Western Sydney is such a diverse region and the voting patterns of our residents also reflected that. So what we did find is that electorates with higher levels of educational attainment, such as Parramatta and Reed, registered greater support for yes at the referendum. And then we found that in other parts of Western Sydney, uh, like the Liberal-held seat of Lindsay, which takes in Penrith, we recorded the highest um, vote for no at the referendum in the region at 69%. So we did see diversity across the region and one of our papers that we just released explores the breakdown across Western Sydney. Well, of course, we're not just talking about politically diverse Western Sydney. Just remind us of how ethnically and religiously diverse Western Sydney is, that great sort of arc that runs from Blacktown in the northwest right through to Campbelltown in the southwest. Our diversity within the region is one of our greatest strengths. It's similar to the diverse voting patterns of our residents. Throughout the LGAs of Western Sydney, there is significantly um, different levels of culturally and linguistically and religious uh, diversity that we find in Western Sydney. But overall, in the region itself, 35% of our residents were born overseas, which is uh, significantly higher than the national average. And 74% of our residents have one or both parents born overseas from around 170 countries. And we record that our residents speak over 100 different languages and dialects. 
that's in terms of cultural linguistic diversity. When we look at religious diversity, 71.2% of our population nominate a religion, which uh, is significantly higher than the rest of Sydney and the national average. And we have more diversity in the religious groups that we record. So we have high proportions of Muslim, Hindu and Buddhist faiths uh, recorded in our region compared to the rest of Sydney and, and the national average. Given that diversity, Rhonda, given that Western Sydney is the religious and immigrant heartland of Australia in many ways, should we be surprised that there was, maybe we could say, caution among voters about changing the constitution? Yes, absolutely. So our issues paper that analysed uh, you know, a very preliminary analysis of the results over the weekend demonstrates the importance of education in being one of the primary factors really shaping the voting patterns of residents of Western Sydney. So thinking about that role of education and how that might have shaped the way diverse communities have voted, we do find that the education factor was more significant, more so than multicultural backgrounds of our communities. Within our issues paper, we have found that some incredibly culturally and linguistically diverse parts of Western Sydney did actually vote yes, um, well above the national rate. So the role of diversity in determining the yes or no vote isn't as strong as as one might assume. Mm. I have read, though, some analysis, especially leading up to the referendum, that suggested for some recent immigrant communities, especially those from South Asia and the Middle East, to them, Australia represents stability. And, you know, given the, the experiences in their lives, they are a little nervous about doing anything that they feel might change stability. Yes, absolutely. I did read some of those analyses as well. Overall, as I've mentioned, the, the role of education was very critical. And one of the question marks at the end of this referendum is whether the education delivered on what this referendum actually represents or what actual change would come about. The questions around whether the education provided was appropriate for multicultural communities, whether it targeted those communities effectively, whether it used language and explanations that provided answers to some of those cautions is a critical area of concern. The need to engage more effectively with multicultural communities through education that response to those concerns is one that should be prioritised moving forward. Mm. The Yes campaign did point out that it had the backing of all the major ethnic groups and pretty much all the major religious leaders in Australia, not just Christians, but uh, towards the end, I think the local imams at some of the big mosques, and when we talk about uh, mosques, we're talking about places where people gather in the thousands, they were supporting Yes. Is there a question mark, though, now as to how representative some of these peak bodies might be of grassroots feeling? Yeah, that's right. I did see uh, very actually early support from communities like the Muslim community and the Daisy community, like Daisy's for Yes, that were emerging from Western Sydney at that grassroots level. What I can conclude from what we've seen in the referendum is like COVID-19, communities are receiving information from other sources beyond their leadership. The online space and social media platforms are providing a much more critical source of information 
for contemporary voters. So what we are seeing is that while leaders remain important for some of their communities, including in multicultural communities, information that informs voting patterns is being sourced elsewhere, in particular on the online space. Dr Rhonda Itawi of the Centre for Western Sydney, and you're with Andrew West. Finally today, we've all done it, or at least we've seen it, and we've laughed, maybe we've cringed as it passed by. The drunken Bucks Party or Hen's Night wending its way through the city. But in the historic Spanish town of Seville, they've had enough. The government is cracking down on these revellers, especially the ones who don the raunchy headgear, some even stripped down to their underwear. Their antics are especially jarring because Seville is one of Spain's most religious places. Fiona Flores Watson is a travel writer who lives in the city. They've proposed an amendment to the public safety law whereby people will not be able to dress up using sexual content and they won't be able to make a lot of noise when they're having their stag and hen parties in the centre of Seville. The residents in the centre of Seville are pretty annoyed by the amount of stag and hen parties that come into the centre. They will quite often be dressed up with blown up penises on their heads. They'll carry inflatable dolls. They might be dressed up in very revealing clothing, sometimes even naked. I think that's quite rare, but certainly dressed up in quite sexual clothing. They can be very noisy. They shout. They can annoy the people that are sitting down, minding their own business, having a drink, and they can run up to them and be shouting. And really, they just disturb life for the the people that live here. So it's the noise and the sexual content of the things that annoy people. And they will sometimes have a band with them. They sometimes have a very noisy band called a charanga. The combination of all of this is very annoying for local people and they've, they've had enough, they're fed up with it. Uh, so what, this is the average Saturday night in Seville now, is it? <laughs> Not every Saturday night. Obviously, when it's very, very hot in July and August, there are fewer of them and probably December, January time fewer. But the big wedding season here is May, May, June, September. A lot of people get married. So around March, April time, that's when there are there are a lot of the groups. But they can happen all year round because we have fantastic weather all year round. So you know that if you come here, it's very unlikely it's going to rain. It's going to be lovely and warm. It's a small old centre. So wherever you're staying, you can get to the bars and so on very easily. So it's a, it's a very popular city. And also when we have bank holidays, there's a lot of national holidays here. I call it because I'm English, a bank holiday and it's a three-day weekend, then it's even more likely they're going to come because they've got time to celebrate, basically. Mm. It's about drunkenness and and loudness, drunkenness and noise. Where do most of the revellers come from, Fiona? Funnily enough, this story has been grabbed with both hands, as you probably know, by the British press. (laughs) It came out in the Times, first of all, and then the Independent and then the Guardian. Nowhere in anything that the mayor has said does it refer to British people. But the British press have grabbed it with both hands because they love stories about drunken Brits abroad, especially in Spain. However, a lot of these groups actually come from Madrid and other cities. I imagine from time to time there are some Australians there as well, adding to the revelry, but also the noise. I mean, it's it's a bit far to fly for a stag night, but I imagine there are some Australians who've indulged in this way. <laughs> Probably, but I don't know if they've come all this way for a, a stag do. Probably to come and have a holiday and, and have some beers. As I said, it's a warm city. 
it's begging for you to go outside and have some beers. And obviously some people get carried away and have too many beers. That's mm. fair enough. Now, I said, you know, is this what Seville is like on a Saturday night? I'm also wondering, though, Fiona, what Seville is like on a Sunday morning, because I understand that it's quite a religious city. The way that Seville is very religious is Semana Santa. So in Holy Week, we have a massive amount of processions, very popular, about a million people, sorry, a million visitors come to the city. And that's when you have the processions with the statues of the Virgin Mary and Jesus and processions with people with the hoods called um, Nazarenos with the pointy hoods. And that's a huge, huge, huge deal in Seville. People get very emotional about it when they see the Virgin. They say, que guapa, how beautiful. But that's more of an aesthetic and theatrical thing. So I don't think that this whole thing has that much to do with religion per se. It's more about the type of people that come here, the noise and the drunkenness. Yes, they don't like inflatable penises. I imagine, though, Fiona, people would see this disjuncture, though, in this uh, city of churches, even if it's only marginally more (laughs) religious than the rest of Spain, they would see a disjuncture between a city renowned for its religious celebrations, even if they are, as you say, more aesthetic, and the kind of highly sexualised behaviour, especially if you've got people close to near nude. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm sure that some of the people that are complaining about this are the people who are religiously observant. You're probably right. There's a word they use here, which is rancio, which means sort of old-fashioned fuddy-duddy. So some people may be considered a bit rancio for complaining about this. And yes, you're right. It is pretty bizarre if you've got someone running around with a, a hairband with, you know, penises, like wiggly penises attached to it. And you've got a lot of churches. It's Spain in the 21st century, basically. You know, you've still got a lot of incredibly beautiful churches. The architecture is fantastic. Religion still runs through this city, but it's more in a, sorry, this country and this city. But it's more in a cultural way because you've got, All the churches, you've got the monasteries, you've got the convents, everything is named after a saint, all the streets and the the hospitals and and bars, everything is named after saints. So it's absolutely in the DNA. The religion is in the DNA. Mm. But the people that come here for the hen nights, obviously, that has absolutely nothing to do with them. So there is a bit of a disjuncture. Have you ever spoken with any of these revelers? You're well entrenched in the culture. You write a lot about it as part of your work. Have you ever, ever had a chat with any of these people? I've had a laugh with them. I actually don't live right in the centre myself, so I personally don't get bothered by this. But I have spoken to, to obviously, I'm for this, you know, to do this interview. I've spoken to friends that do. They're having a laugh. I think they're fairly good natured. Most of them, they're just a little bit too high spirited. And I think that if they bring in this this amendment to the law, and they specifically say none of the sexualised clothing or, or inflatables or whatever. Tranquilizate, calm down a bit. I think it'll be fine. So I've spoken to them just to say, oh, are you having a good time? Then they're like, oh, yeah, it's fantastic. Never really any much more than that. But I know that they do get in the way of people. As I said, if, if you're sitting there minding your own business, having your dinner, and they're sort of bumping into your table, that is really annoying. It's just over the top. They need to tone it down. It's like a small child that's got overexcited. Tone it down a bit. So the mayor has said, we're very happy for you to come. He's not saying he doesn't want people to come at all. He says, anyone can celebrate their stag or hen party in Seville. What we don't look kindly on are groups of people dressed up as whatever with a charanga, that's the band, (laughs) disturbing the residents of Seville, especially in areas of the old town who also have the right to enjoy their city. It's partly about religion, absolutely, but it's partly about 
annoying people and being just noisy and a, and a pain. When you're gone out for dinner, you're having a nice drink with your partner or your friends. You can't even hear yourself think because you've got some incredibly noisy group near you. Mm. That's what's annoying. Fiona, in this very serious week, you've you've put a very a big smile on my face <laughs> and, and I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> Fiona Flores Watson, she's a travel writer. She's based in Seville. We'll put a link to Fiona's website at our website and uh, a warning there for uh, any Australians. Uh, just uh, keep out of uh, what we call the dick stickers uh, if you're parading through the streets of uh, Seville. Uh, Fiona, thank you very much for being on the program. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me, Andrew. And that is it. You can find us at ABC Listen. Thanks to Hong Jang and our audio panel beater, Roy Huberman. I'm Andrew West. Join us again for the Religion and Ethics Report. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.